dance before the Lord. Shalom, shalom. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm delighted to hear that you are drawn to the Jewish root that supports the grafted-in branches. You know, Torah is central to properly understand and perform the will of Hashem, that is, God. It is crucial for us to understand theologically that the primary purpose in Hashem's giving of the Torah as a way of making someone forensically righteous only achieves its goal when the person, by faith, accepts that Yeshua, Jesus, is the promised Messiah spoken about therein. to Parashat Achimot, After the Death. The address is Vaikra, Leviticus, chapter 16, verse 1, through chapter 18, verse 30. The reading date is for Shabbat, and I am the author, Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman. The written commentary was updated on March 20th of 2007. Note that all quotations are taken from the Complete Jewish Bible Translation by David H. Stern. Jewish New Testament publications incorporated unless otherwise noted. Let's begin with the opening blessing for the Torah. Baruch atah Adonai lochenu melech haolam asher bachar banu mikol haamim venatan lanu et Torato. Baruch atah Adonai notein ha Torah. Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the Universe. You have selected us from among all the peoples and have given us your Torah. Blessed are you, Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Well, this is Parashat Achimot, and this particular commentary that I'm about to study today will represent the longest, most comprehensive article on the weekly portions that I have personally authored to date. Um, I've got longer commentaries on the web, but no longer for the weekly Torah portions. In fact, my um, I think my exegeting Galatians commentary is the longest that I've written so far. Uh, I don't know, around 50 or 60 pages, something like that. At any rate, uh, be prepared for a long read, or if you're listening to the podcast, a long listen. I don't know, probably at least uh, three or four... Uh, parts of 30 to 40 minutes each, okay? The following topics will be examined today. We're going to look at the subject of Kippur. Uh, we're going to talk about apologetics, part one. Apologetics, part two. We're going to discuss Yeshua's bloody sacrifice. Then we're going to talk about, um, I've got a little section here called There's Power in the Blood. And then we'll talk about doing the Torah, do the Torah. And then we'll add our conclusions after that. If you're following along on the written commentary, we're right on the uh, bottom of page one. And um, again, because of the length of this particular commentary, uh, I don't mind if you uh, break it up into pieces, listen to a little bit here, a little bit there, 
I certainly re recommend printing out the commentary uh, if you don't have access to um, any type of audio equipment where you can record it and download it to a CD or something like that or to your iPod. But at least print it out. Um, it's 19 pages in print form. And that way you'll be able to stop and look at each topic uh, a little more closely. Well, this parasha um, contains within it some of the single most impacting verses in the Torah. And what I mean by that is, in, in theological studies, we call these chair passages. And the reason they're called that is because they have the power to change an entire theological argument. Kind of like a judge passing a sentence. You know, two, two um, parties enter a courtroom not knowing what the verdict is going to be. And until the judge passes sentence... Um, you know, it could either be in favor of one party or in favor of the other party, or a little bit of both, as as happens in many courts these days. You never really get everything you want. Well, with chair passages and things like that, they're almost like forks in the road, and they can decide which direction we should embark upon, depending on how we translate the passage or what kind of ruling we pass as to which way the passage should be interpreted. What I'm hinting at is this. The particular verses that we're going to be looking at today in this particular parasha are both central to Christianity as well as Judaism. And in their arguments of the respective passages, as you're going to see, Judaism takes one fork, Christianity takes another fork, and because of that the two parties don't meet together. They run uh, parallel to one another with differing arguments. And so it's our job as exegetes, as students of the word, to try and see if we can figure out which fork is the correct road based on the data, based on, of course, inspiration of the Spirit, based on our exegeting, our exegeting the passage, okay? Our exegetical um, skills. So, before we get too far, there's a significant quote from my opening teaching on Leviticus, the Parashat Vaikra, and I want to read that before we get too far. This next section is entitled Kippur. This is taken from Parashat Vayichel. As I stated in a previous parasha, God's system of animals of uh, animal sacrifices with their ability to cleanse or wash the flesh was never intended to be a permanent one. What I mean is, it was never intended to be um, a means unto itself or an ends unto a. Uh, I'm sorry, a means unto itself. It is a, an ends to a means, but it's not a means unto itself. That's what I mean by the phrase. It was never intended to be a permanent one. Um, the idea is that the, the worshiper approaching the Holy Sancta, the tabernacle or the temple, was not um, supposed to simply approach the tabernacle or the temple, uh, interact with God, and then leave without really knowing God. That's what I mean by the um, uh, phrase, never intended to be a permanent one. Um, I'm not so sure that when God asked Moshe to build the tabernacle, that God was hoping... Uh, that God wasn't hoping that it would be there permanently. I'm sure the uh, Israelites hoped that the uh, tabernacle and or the temple, which was to be, be built later, would in fact exist uh, in perpetuity. But what I mean by the phrase never intended to be a permanent one was, I don't believe God put up the tabernacle and the temple with the idea of destroying them later on. That's not what I mean by the phrase. Again, it's the system was uh, designed to bring the worshiper to a, a respective goal that God had in mind. And uh, that's what I mean by the permanent one there. Conversely, the animal sacrifices were not intended to be a temporary fix either. In other words, um, the idea is taught sometimes in Christian circles 
that the animal sacrifices provided a temporary atonement on the on the level of Yeshua's atonement until Yeshua came to uproot the sacrificial system and then um, he would provide a permanent atonement or something like that. That doesn't seem to capture everything that the word kafar is trying to explain to us either. The, the, the animals were not designed to compete with Yeshua. They didn't provide a, a temporary fix on the inside. Think of it this way, okay? you got the animals affecting cleansing on the outside, and you have Yeshua's atonement affecting uh, cleansing on the inside. As long as we have the two working in tandem, they work properly, outside and inside. So which means, optimally, we would want outward cleansing and inward cleansing. Not outward cleansing or inward cleansing. It's not either or. It's both and. Are you following me so far? So that's what I mean by the animal sacrifices were not intended to be a temporary fix. They didn't temporarily save a person until Yeshua came to offer some other type of salvation. That is completely uh, mis. That is a completely misunderstood uh, application of the animal sacrifices. No, the animal sacrifices um, did their job. They cleansed the flesh. Actually, they cleansed the sanctum itself, which um, allowed for. Um, the worshiper to approach God without incurring any guilt. Let's just read on. I think I'm going to hit those points. The etymological background of the word Torah, which the root word being an archery term meaning to direct towards the goal, this word Torah suggests that the fullest measure of Hashem's atonement, the Hebrew word is kafar, usually translated to atone, to cover over, to make reconciliation, to pacify, to propitiate, or to purge, according to the BDB, Brown, Driver, and Briggs, Justinius Lexicon. Um, the word Torah and the word kafar, um, the, the realities of these words were not found in the earthly copies, but rather in the heavenly originals. In other words, the Torah is a cleverly crafted tool to bring the person towards an intended goal. Okay, God gave the Torah as an ends to a means. In other words, the Torah is supposed to lead the student to the teacher of righteousness, to borrow a uh, midrash from... Uh, Rav Shaul's letter to the Galatians. The a similar um, logic can be applied to the atoning devices that the animals um, provided. They were intended to push the participant towards the intended goal of placing their faith in the God of the uh, sacrifices and in essence come into a genuine relationship with him. And in, and in doing so, uh, fall on his mercy, on his grace, um, and ultimately accept the Messiah who was spoken about in the Torah. So the the earthly copies are all designed to point towards the heavenly originals. But that doesn't mean that the earthly copies are useless, far from it. In fact, quite the opposite is in view. God gave the earthly copies as one of the single most important object lessons to point towards the Messiah. Um, that part I think we've caught in Christian circles, but we seem to get confused when it comes to what exactly the animal sacrifices provided for the worshiper. So that's what this little section is entitled uh, to um, reintroduce to us, is the proper way in which to understand the sacrifices. During the time period of the Tanakh, the animal sacrifices were authentically God's system. They were not man-made. They were not 
cleverly designed by the rabbis, such as the prayer system that we have today. No, these were God's systems, and uh, these were God's animals, and they were God's um, instructions that Israel was to walk into. In other words, if you were a citizen of the community of former slaves back then, and you wanted to operate within a covenant relationship with its savior, then, as a covenant member, you had no choice but to participate in the sacrificial system when approaching the holy tabernacle, or the holy temple, where God concentrated his glory. You had sin, and as you approached the holy sanctum, you were required to bring sacrifices. There was no room for circumvention, even if you believed in Yeshua. And we surely believe that Moshe was a Messianic Jew, if I could use that term anachronistically and get away with it. Moshe believed in the Messiah, according to the writer of the book of Hebrews. So as Moshe approached the holy things, he too had to walk into the instructions that was handed down by his own hand to the priests, and then delineated to the people. Okay, There's no room for circumvention. Shaul was clearly a believer in Yeshua. And yet, when he approached the temple of his day, he didn't just waltz right into the Holy of Holies. No, that's a foolish uh, example. Um, surely he approached the sacrifices, or approached the sanctum, um, with the sacrificial system in view. Um, to be sure, uh, if he were to be found walking into the Holy of Holies or the Holy Place itself, not being a priest, he would have been stopped, perhaps even killed. Anyway, as we begin discuss this, to discuss the sacrificial system, we begin to realize that there is a great amount of exclusivity, and we have to ask ourselves, why would Hashem require this exclusive approach? Well, again, Think of the uh, passage in Galatians. I keep referencing it. I'm, I may as well turn to it. Tell you which one I'm talking about here. Galatians chapter... Let's see. It is... Um, let me find it here for you. Uh, let's see. Is it chapter 3? Is it chapter 4? Um, I apologize. I do want to find it for you and show it to you so that I can, when I make reference to it, then you'll know which one I'm talking about. Um, I want to say it's in chapter 3. Let me take a look. Uh, was that in order? About the come, heaven forbid. Now before this time came. Here we are, yes. Um, Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse... Um, in verse 24, Shaul says, according, I'm reading from David Stern's version, Accordingly, the Torah functioned as a custodian until the Messiah came, so that we might be declared righteous on the ground of trusting and being faithful. Um, but now that the time for this trusting faithfulness has come, we are no longer under a custodian. What Paul is trying to explain is that the Torah is the... Um, it says custodian here in um, David Stern's version. Uh, let's see, a custodian, but really the Greek word is paidagogos, and the paidagogos is the boy tutor, I guess, if you could translate it woodenly from the Greek, the, the one who led the boy to the teacher of righteousness. Of course, the teacher of righteousness is the Messiah. And so the, the Torah is designed to lead the worshiper towards the goal of placing their faith in Jesus. To, to put it plainly. And once the person reaches that goal, he no longer needs that particular instruction. That is to say, he no longer needs to be led by the Torah to Jesus every time he reads the Torah. The Torah changes its function 
and now becomes his um his blueprint his blueprint for righteous living at any rate um let's keep reading in my commentary why would hashem require exclusivity because the torah and because of his established order of things in the torah only the blood could make atonement for their lives you can read leviticus 17:11 to see that chair passage that god gave the blood to make the um, uh, covering for their lives. Tim Haig makes a good case for the meaning of the word kafar as wipe off and smear on. In this quote that I'm about to read from you from a short paper that he wrote, it's available at his site at torresource.com, and I pulled the quote, oh, it was March 20th, and when I pulled the quote then, March 20th, 2007. Here's what Tim Haig has to say, quote, The root KPR is attested in the Akkadian base stem, Kaparu, meaning wipe off, smear on. This is classified with Kaparu 2, pour bitumen over, and Koper 2, pitch, tar, bitumen, and with the so-called D-stem, Kupuru, to wipe clean, or I'm sorry, to wipe off or to clean, to rub, ritually purify. Now, um, the uh, uh, information that Tim Hicks is going to explain to us is kind of a challenge to many within both Christian and Messianic circles who believed for the longest time that kafar, its root word, simply meant to cover because of the main stem that it shows up in the call stem, uh, the simplest stem or the simplest conjugation that Hebrew verbs find themselves in. Tim Hicks goes on to say that the idea that kafar has its base uh, meaning to cover was strengthened by the fact that the same root is used one time in the Tanakh to mean, quote, to cover with pitch, end quote. That's Genesis 6.14. And in this case, the verb appears in the call stem. However, every other place the verb is found in the Tanakh, it is, e- it is in either the pi'el, the pu'al, the heat pi'el, or the rare neat pi'el. Averbeck notes that, quote, from a methodological point of view, Linguistically, the same root in a different stem is a different word. And as such, the call should not necessarily be taken to indicate the meaning for the pial and other stems. Haig goes on to conclude, Thus the suggestion that kafar has as its base meaning to cover has been discarded by many current scholars, including evangelical scholars. Again, the quote is from Tim Haig, the meaning of kafar at torresource.com. If you're following along using the written notes, just look down at the um, footnote to number three and you can click on the link there. It'll take you straight to the article. Now, um, in my own commentary, we noticed that presenting the notion that the blood of the animals did not so much cleanse the worshiper as it cleansed the holy sanctum, Tikvat David, Hope of David, writes in an article titled, quote, Understanding the Sacrifices of Israel, Past and Future, end quote. Here's what Tikvat David has to say, quote, Most importantly, burnt purification and reparation offerings were made to cleanse the sanctuary of the people's sin and impurity. The sins and ritual impurities of the people were like pollution that stuck to the tabernacle and the temple. God's holy presence would withdraw from the land, which was also holy, if the people did not constantly cleanse to allow his presence near. This is the theology of Leviticus 15.31, which reads, quote, Thus you shall keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle that is in their midst. End quote. This is also behind Numbers 5.3, they go on to say, which reads, quote, you shall put out both male and female, putting them outside the camp, that they may not defile their camp, 
in the midst of which I dwell. End quote. They also recommend that you see Numbers 19, 13, and verse 20, as well as Ezekiel 5, 11, and Ezekiel 23, 38. Their conclusion, thus the Levitical sacrifices were not for obtaining personal forgiveness or for making the worshiper clean. In this sense, they were not like the cross of Yeshua, which does bring forgiveness to the worshiper and makes him or her clean. They were to clean the sanctuary of the people's sins and impurities so God's presence could dwell in a clean place. End quote. The footnote number four points to www.hopeofdavid.com. That's article number one. Now, um, what we just heard from Tikvat David is uh, very similar to what Haig notes uh, when he makes a reference to, the, to, to cleansing the tabernacle itself. Let's read Haig once again. Quote, if we accept Averbeck's viewpoint that a primary meaning of kiper, which is the peel stem of kafar, if we accept that the primary meaning is to be found in those places where the verb has a clear direct object, then its base meaning is to be found in connection with Yom Kippur, for the verb with direct object occurs only in Leviticus 16 and the comparable passages in Ezekiel 43 and 45. If this is the case, then the base meaning is, quote, to wipe away, end quote. For in these contexts, kafar has a direct effect on sancta. It wipes sancta clean, meaning it restores the status of sanctum to that which had been defiled. In this way, Haig goes on to conclude, the call meaning of the verb to cover with pitch, end quote, is connected to the meaning of the pi'el, which is, quote, to wipe with blood, end quote. And again, the footnote to number five is Tim Haig's article, The Meaning of Kafar. Now, after having read the information there, which is a very reliable resource, Tim Haig is always reliable, uh, along with the Tikvat David seems to be hinting in the right direction. I, I'm of the impression that the writers at Tikvat David also are familiar with Haig's writings. I can agree as a writer with both aspects of this word kafar, which is both to cover and to wipe clean, with regards to the worshiper and the sanctuary. For indeed, um, as the blood of the animals pointed toward the ultimate sacrifice of Yeshua, we, the cleansed worshiper, can now approach the Holy of Holies in heaven without fear of contaminating God's throne. And that's kind of what the writer, writers of the apostolic scriptures are hinting at when they talk about that the way to the heavenlies has been made um, accessible through the blood of Yeshua. We can now, in the spiritual sense, approach the Holy of Holies because of what Yeshua has done in the spiritual, or, or within our spirits, or within our consciences. Um, if we had a tabernacle or a temple present today, I'm of the impression that we would still need the sacrificial system to cleanse sins of the flesh. Whether or not we could theoretically approach an earthly mercy seat as believers is altogether another issue. In other words, what do you think would have happened if Shaul would have just walked up to the temple of his day and told the priest, hey, I want to go inspect the holy place, and then I want to go take, take a look around at the Holy of Holies because I've never seen it. I'd really like to see what it looks like. Do you think they would have let him in? They probably would have said no. In fact, I'm sure they would have said no. Well, what if he would have said to him, well, wait a minute, I believe in Jesus. I believe in Yeshua. I know in the heavenlies what's going on, what the earthly realities point to. Will you still let me in? I think you get the idea. They would not have let him in. Suffice it to say, with the above supplied information, we can now better understand that our God was teaching each and every participant an important aspect of his established spiritual laws.
All right. Now, since we're going to be studying Leviticus chapter 16, which concerns itself primarily with the Yom Kippur uh, ceremony, we need to look at another related word to the word kafar. Actually, it's a cognate of the same of the same root. Related to the word kafar is the Hebrew word kaporet, which is what we call the cover to the ark of the covenant, the kaporet. Now, in, in uh, Christian terms, we would probably call this the mercy seat. Okay, it is a fitting connection when we say kap, kafar kaporet, the, the covering. It's a fitting connection since the lid of the ark the mercy seat, is where Hashem spoke to Moshe face to face. You could say, of course, I know that we understand that the mercy seat represents Yeshua, but um, even on the earthly level, where Moshe would converse with God, panim panim le panim, face to face, or panim el panim, I'm sorry, uh, face to face, as it were, were it not for the mercy of God's covering right there in that... um, in that uh, close proximity, Moshe would be consumed by God's glory and God's holiness. And so, mercy is obviously in view. And this is the place where Moshe knew God's voice uh, to uh, come from and to emanate. In fact, the phrase, the God who dwells between the wings of the of the Keruvim, the cherubim, that's a phrase that's found elsewhere in the Tanakh. This place, this uh, this mercy seat, which uh, if you ever saw if you saw Raiders of the Lost Ark, you remember the Ark of the Covenant. We had the two cherubim, the the angels spreading their wings toward facing one another. Right there between the wings um, was where the blood of the atoning animal was offered once a year during Yom Kippur. And you can re, you can reference Leviticus 16 verses 14 to 16. And you'll see um, that that's exactly where the blood was supposed to be sprinkled. Um, also. Uh, God had instructed that um, uh, Moshe meet with, I'm sorry, not Moshe, but the high priest meet here only once a year. It's in this way that the blood of the sacrifice covered the sin of the person bringing it. Again, the blood was splashed on the altar, or splashed on the the Ark of the Covenant on the corners, and... um, and I'll, you know, let me just read the verse. Leviticus sixteen fourteen through 16 reads, quote, uh, Speaking of the high priest, uh, Aharon, he is to take some of the bull's blood and sprinkle it with his finger on the ark cover toward the east. And in front of the ark cover, he is to sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. And then verse 15 says, Next he is to slaughter the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people. Bring its blood inside the curtain. Where is he now inside the curtain? He's inside the Holy of Holies, the Kadosh Kadoshim. Inside the um, uh, blood, um, let's see. Uh, he's supposed to, he's to take the blood inside the uh, inside the curtain, and do with its blood as he did with the bull's blood. Of course, sprinkling it on the ark cover and in front of the ark cover. And then in verse sixteen, um, it says that uh, he will make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all of their sins, and he has to do the same for the tent of meeting, which is there with them right in the middle of their uncleanness. So again, we see um, uh, we see that the blood is sprinkled right there on the mercy seat. And notice how it said that he is, to, verse 16, he will make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness. All right? Because of the sins that the people um, that, the, that, that the people uh, uh, infected the sanctum, as it were. Okay, so um, 
now we're beginning to see that the that, I mean, why would God's sanctum need? Why would His tabernacle need cleansing? You know, unless the unless the sin somehow moved, as it were, from the people to the holy things, the holy uh, articles. Uh, if you can kind of picture that, all right. Um, so, so when we say the, the the blood covered the sin of the person, uh, it both it both um, provided a, a shield for the person, a covering, and a cleansing for the sanctuary at the same time, simultaneously. If we can picture that going on, all right. So it covered the sin of the person, bringing it while simultaneously wiping clean the holy sanctum. That's exactly what I say in my commentary. This type of atonement that we're talking about, while effectually uh, I mean, this type of atonement, while it was effectual for the flesh, it simply purified the flesh. It did not bring the sinner to the goal of becoming saved. That's the point I want to make um, in this part of my commentary, okay? Um, the person bringing the blood of the animals was not saved. That's something that, again, I, if you'll ask your average uh, seminarian, uh, someone who's gone through um, Bible study, how were the Old Testament saints saved? Invariably, the argument that the animals uh, were sacrificed gets brought up. And, and that's, that's wrong, people. It's wrong. The animals did not provide any type of uh, salvation. No cleansing of the conscience. No cleansing of the heart, of the spirit. Cleansing of the flesh? You bet. Purifying the flesh? Absolutely. But bringing the sinner to the goal of becoming saved? Not on your life. All right. Only Yeshua's sacrifice, to which the animals pointed could do that. In a very true way, this type of atonement that I'm describing was of necessity repetitive. Why? Every time they approached the Holy Sancta, they had to bring a sacrifice. Every time the priest went in uh, year after year on Yom Kippur, he had to bring this type of uh, sacrifices. And so it needed a year after year performance by the priests and the people whenever they approached uh, a holy God. Okay, After all, um, ask yourself this question. Did the high priest live forever? No, he didn't. His office was to continue forever uh, because that's what God had promised. But the, the priest himself was human, just like you and just like me. And so he lived and he died. Priests came and priests went. And yet, God's system remained functional right up through the first century into the days of Yeshua. We had the tabernacle lasting for about 116 years and then we had the temple lasting for another uh, thousand, I'm sorry, yeah, about a thousand years. And so, um, I mean, we've been without a, a tabernacle for about 30, about 3,000 years, give or take a couple hundred years. And um, we've been without a tabernacle for about 2,000 years now. So, um, uh, you might ask yourself, well, if Hashem knew that these animals were insufficient in bringing the person to the goal. If he knew this aspect of the sacrificial system, why did he institute it in the first place? Why not just send the Messiah right from the beginning, skip all the elaborate middle steps? That's a question you might be asking yourself. Well, I'll tell you what. This is a good and valid question. It's not entirely unlike those that I hear from most non-Jewish believers and a few Jewish people as well. Unfortunately, I can't answer that question. It's a hypothetical question. And uh, we're just going to have to wait till we see Yeshua to ask that question. But um, what we can do is continue to press in and study about the sacrifices and learn more about what they were teaching the people then, what they're teaching us today, and what we are to do about it now that Yeshua has come, and now that we have no temple. So, um, at this point in time, it's about 30 minutes into the commentary. I'll call this part A. 
and uh, cut it off right here. I encourage you to continue to listening. We're on the top of page four with a section entitled Apologetics Part 1. Stay tuned to the commentary to Parashat Ahremut.